going to read from the first book of Kings. First Kings and the chapter 19. I'm going to read about Elijah. It's a dramatic experience. And we see that Elijah has reached a testing stage in his life. It's all before us as we turn to it. It's a chapter that is quoted in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit directs our attention to it, even to the emotions of this worthy servant of God. We're glad it's in, in the Bible. You can say that. We're glad this chapter's in the Bible. It's written for our edification. First Kings chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. The prophets here are the false prophets, prophets uh, who served at the shrines of idolatry. So they were intensely wicked men. And Elijah had supervised uh, the execution of these men who had destroyed the country. Then verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and let him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him 
And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very busy, very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. When thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me Seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Praise the Lord for the reading of the Holy Scriptures this day and the preaching of his name also. First Kings chapter 19, verse number 7 is our text. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. The angel of the Lord came 
and touched him. Let's pray together as we think this morning about Christ appearing to the prophet of God, Elijah. Let's call upon the Lord and ask God to speak to your hearts. Father, we just thank thee today for a real sense of your presence with us already. We thank thee, Father, that we can say that this is the day that the Lord hath made. Lord, help us to rejoice and to be glad in it. Lord, speak to your hearts. Lord, come and touch our lives this morning. And Father, come, O God, we pray, and open our hearts, Lord, and feed us, O God, with thy word, and enable us, Lord, to see and experience the hand and the grace of God in our lives in these days. Lord, you know the need of every heart this morning, and we pray that thy Spirit will do a deep and lasting work. Lord, we pray for the help therefore of heaven, for the anointing of the Spirit of God, for the uplifting and honoring of our Savior. Glorify thy Son, for it's in his name and for thy glory that we pray. Amen. You know, the problem of depression is a very real one. We are living in a world that is hurting, and we are living as well in a world that is broken. And many good people, and as well many godly and gracious people, can and do struggle with seasons of depression, feeling downcast, feeling low, maybe feeling that there's a cloud over them all the time and they perhaps can't see a way out. You know, the reality is, and many people can say, no, Christians shouldn't be depressed. And that might, in the clinical sense, be true. If we're going to be very clinical about the whole thing, we, we would have to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be depressed. And we shouldn't be anxious, and we shouldn't be afraid, and we shouldn't worry. But, you know, the reality is that sometimes we are discouraged. And sometimes we are brought down, and sometimes we just don't feel on top of the world, and, and we just can't seem to change how we feel. We maybe can't always justify it, but the reality is that many of God's people can and do struggle with anxiety and depression. Depression, of course, can be clinical. There is such a thing as medical depression. The brain is an organ like every other organ in the body. And it can at times be in trouble, if you like. And the brain sometimes can just not function the way it ought to in many different levels. And sometimes depression can be a result of that. Depression can be clinical. Depression as well can be circumstantial. Whenever a multiplicity of things happen in our lives and they all come together, sometimes it can result in a feeling of depression, maybe stress in the workplace, problems in the home, maybe not getting a lot of rest and trials in the family and things may be said and things are done and we just don't feel that we're able to cope with circumstances in life and it all gets on top of us and the results can be anxiety or sometimes as well depression. Depression also can be spiritual. I believe there is such a thing today as spiritual depression. We're living in a world where there's a great rise in the tide of sin and iniquity, and that can affect God's people, and the enemy has come in like a flood. 
And the Bible says that the Christian wrestles against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And it speaks about the fiery darts of the wicked and the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And so depression can be clinical. It can be circumstantial. It can be medical. It can be spiritual. Or it could also be a, a range of, of different things in all of these areas. And so it's sometimes difficult, I'm sure, if we're not feeling on top of the world and we're feeling cast down to discern why we're depressed or why we're discouraged or why we are feeling low. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor before he became a preacher of the gospel. And he studied in Harley Street and he was doing well. And he has written prolifically upon the subject of depression and also medicine in relation to the Bible. And he comes to these issues with a very balanced approach, maybe because of his medical background. And he says, sometimes people think that their problem is spiritual, but it might be completely physical. And then there are others who feel that their problem is physical, it might be entirely mental or emotional. And then there are others who feel that their problem is emotional, but their problem might be spiritual. And so it's very important to try, maybe by a process of elimination, to discern why we are feeling, why we're feeling, in order that we might treat it effectively. The reality is as well that some temporary feelings of depression can be entirely natural. And we are not to be alarmed whenever we feel low at certain times, as if there is something radically wrong with us. Whenever you lose a loved one, the natural feeling will be that you'll feel sad for maybe a prolonged period of time, and that's entirely natural. Or if some tragedy befalls your family, or there's some problem in the workplace, or there's financial strife or adversity, the natural reaction is that you're not going to feel glad or happy or filled with joy. And so sometimes temporary feelings of depression are entirely natural. And we shouldn't think that there's something strange or wrong about feeling sad or downcast or low whenever things happen in our lives. Great men and women of God have often struggled with depression. Some great missionaries, preachers, and hymn writers were honest enough to say that they oftentimes felt melancholy was the word that they often used. And then whenever you come to the Bible itself, you read about some of the best servants of God, and many of them struggled with depression. David said to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Jonah struggled with these feelings as well. Of course, Job is a a classic example of a man who struggled because of his circumstances to rise above them mentally and emotionally. Jeremiah struggled with it as well. In fact, the Bible says that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he exclaimed, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even on to death. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But perhaps the classic example of a saint of God struggling with depression is Elijah. We have that here in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in the midst of it all, the Lord came and met him 
at the point of need. Verse number seven, the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. And so this morning we're thinking about Christ appearing to Elijah, another one of these great Christophanies. And we trust that the Lord has been encouraging our hearts as we have thought about these times whenever the Son of God came in the Old Testament and met different individuals. And you'll have noted, I'm sure, that all of the people that we have considered already were at different historical settings in the Old Testament Scripture, different needs and different personalities, but the Lord met them all at the point of need. And whatever your need is this morning, oh, that the Lord would come and touch you and speak to you and feed you and strengthen you and enable you to go on. I want you to notice, first of all, the context of this Christophany. Context is always important and always insightful. And whenever you go back into the previous chapter, 1 Kings 18, whenever you think about the circumstances that Elijah found himself in in her text, in chapter 18, you've got the conquest at Carmel. Verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. And you have this great showdown in Mount Carmel between true religion and false religion. And we need to remind ourselves that God is interested in these issues. We're living in a, a day and generation where people have the idea it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something. And it doesn't really matter what you believe about God as long as you believe that there is a God. And as long as you're honest and earnest and sincere, that's all that really matters. But God in heaven is concerned about truth and error. He's concerned about the true and the false, especially whenever it comes to who He is and to whether or not we serve and honor him. And Elijah called all of the people to Mount Carmel, and there's just great showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah. And you know the story well, that he puts a, a bullock upon an altar, he divides it up, he covers it with barrel after barrel of water. He's not trying to shoehorn anything or manipulate anything. And then ultimately, he calls down fire from heaven. And the fire of God falls and consumes the sacrifice. And it's a time of great victory. And Elijah has experienced the presence of God and the power of God in a way that perhaps he has never experienced it or known it before. But then shortly after the conquest at Carmel, this depression sets in. And you would be able to, I'm sure, go to Elijah and say, Elijah, look at what you've just done. God's on your side. You've proved God and you've shown to Israel who your God is. And God has answered your prayer. You should be rejoicing. But Elijah's cast down, even after the conquest at Carmel. And then at the end of chapter 18, not only the conquest at Carmel, but also hope on the horizon. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now chapter 17 speaks about a great drought. 
no dew nor rain for several years. And the land is arid and dry and barren, not only physically, but also spiritually. But Elijah is a man of vision and a man who believes in a better day. And there's hope on the horizon because it goes on to to say in verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now and look towards the sea. And he looks out towards the sea and says, there's nothing. And Elijah says, go again seven times. He's got the conviction that this sound of abundance of rain that he's hearing by faith isn't far away. And he calls his servant to go time after time, seven times, look towards the horizon. And at last the servant comes back after persevering and after watching and after waiting and after Elijah praying and prophesying. He comes back and says, there is a cloud coming up out of the sea, the size of a man's hand, a tiny, small, little cloud. And Elijah says, well, there's our answer. And Elijah gets up and he begins to run and soon the heaven is black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. It's a remarkable story. The fire fell at Carmel and then the people fell and then soon the rain fell and it's a time of tremendous hope and it's really a, a dawning of a new day and this season of barrenness and drought has now come to an end. And again, you should think that Elijah, after the conquest at Carmel and after hope on the horizon, will be filled with the joy of the Lord and enthusiasm. But alas, no, he's discouraged. And then also, whenever you think about the context of it all, not only is there the conquest at Carmel, and hope on the horizon in chapter 18, but as you come into chapter 19, you've got the wrath of a woman. And I have to be very careful here about what we say, because you could say a lot about this, couldn't we? The wrath of a woman. Men are just as bad, and we can all be filled with rage and filled with wrath, and we can listen to the world around us, and we can listen to the threats of the ungodly, and Ahab was a godless man who hated Elijah. But Ahab's wife hated Elijah even more than than Ahab did. And Elijah, you would think, would be riding in the crest of the wave of victory and vision and vitality. But suddenly everything goes pear-shaped. And in chapter 19, Ahab goes home with his tail between his legs. It's been a bad day at the office. And he tells his wife everything that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword and Ahab's head is down, his shoulders are down, he's in something of a, a huff and he tells his wife Jezebel all about it. And Jezebel essentially says, well, Ahab, I'll sort this man out for you. If you're not man enough and you can't do it, I will. And she sends a message to Elijah that simply says, you'll be dead within a day. You're going to be in eternity within the next 24 hours. And she sends this message to Elijah, and that's the thing that seems to break him. After the conquest at Carmel, and after hope on the horizon, there's the wrath of a woman, and there's this messenger that comes and says, Jezebel is out to get you. 
You're finished. You'll be dead within 24 hours. And all of a sudden, Elijah drops the bundle and he runs into the wilderness. And all of a sudden, discouragement and despair and depression fill his heart. You see, the devil will have you crossing streams in your mind that don't exist. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the father of liars. And behind Ahab and behind Jezebel, there was the voice of the enemy coming into Elijah's soul like a fiery dart. And he's now worried about the future. He's worried about his security. He thinks that God has let him go. He's tired and he's weary. And he goes into the wilderness. And then that's where he meets the Lord. I wonder today, is there somebody in the meeting, and you're a little bit like Elijah this morning. The enemy has come in like a flood into your mind. You've maybe received messages, and you've heard words, and the enemy has been speaking into your soul, and he's been calling your walk with God into question, telling you that there's no hope, that everything's just going to spiral out of control, that it's just nothing but darkness and gloominess in front of you. And there's really no hope in anything. But that's where the Lord came. Notice in verse 4 and verse 5 of 1 Kings 19, as we think about the characteristics of the Christophany, notice where the Lord found him. He found him in a place of isolation. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. He's in the place of isolation, a day's journey into the wilderness. What a contrast you have here in chapter 19 whenever you compare it with chapter 18. Chapter 18 is on the mountaintop, surrounded by multitudes of people. Chapter 19, he's in the valley, he's in the wilderness, and he's there completely isolated and completely alone. And then he goes and he sits under a juniper tree or under a broom tree. Not a very happy picture. It looks like he's giving up. He's gone into the wilderness. He's sat down under a juniper tree. And he just feels like giving up, throwing in the towel. What's the point? I might as well give up. I've spent and I've been spent for God. I've proved God's grace on Carmel. But it seems that it's accomplished absolutely nothing. And I feel like throwing in the towel. I feel like giving up. Have you felt like giving up recently? Maybe giving up in life? Maybe giving up in your family. Maybe giving up in your marriage. Maybe giving up in church. Maybe giving up in your service. Maybe giving up on God altogether. And then he requests for himself that he might die. That's his thinking. He requested for himself that he might die. He's talking to himself and requesting for himself and speaking to himself. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And sometimes the more we allow and the more we entertain negative thoughts to build up in our minds, 
The things that we think of determine how we feel, and how we feel, we think, can determine exactly what we are and who we are and where we are in life's journey. You know, it's sometimes very difficult to stop thoughts entering into your mind. But it is very important as to what we do with those thoughts whenever they arise. Somebody once said, I cannot stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. That's a good statement. We maybe can't stop thoughts from arising, but we can stop thoughts and we should endeavor to stop thoughts from taking root. Elijah is thinking the wrong thoughts, and then soon Elijah is praying the wrong prayers. He requested for himself that he might die, and then he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Praying that the Lord will end his life. Dear friends, we can pray such prayers. And we might earnestly and sincerely mean them whenever we pray them. But sometimes whenever the Lord intervenes and we look back uh, from a different perspective, from a better perspective, and we realize that was an unwise thing to think and an unwise prayer to pray. But the lovely thing is, the Lord knew where Elijah was. And he knows where you are this morning. And the Lord knew exactly how Elijah was and he knows how you are this morning as well. And the Lord came to Elijah, and verse number five, as he lay and slept there under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. The psalmist said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and where shall I flee from thy presence? Elijah has gone out there into the wilderness. He has left Mount Carmel, where God revealed himself. He's gone into a wilderness. He's alone, but even there, even there he finds the Lord, or rather, even there the Lord finds him. God's servant James said, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just flesh and blood like every one of us. He wasn't some superman that was void of emotion and immune from attack. He's just like every single one of us. And maybe today, God finds you in a place of isolation. Maybe you've distanced yourself, in a sense, from God and from the things of God and from the people of God and from the Word of God and from the place of prayer. You'll notice not only where the Lord found him, the place of isolation, but notice what the Lord did for him. Intervention. Verse number 5 says, He lay and slept under a juniper tree and Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And the angel is further described in verse number 7 as being the angel of the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, if you discover and study there, the angel of the Lord. We have noted it in weeks gone by. The angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate Christ. And so the Son of God is coming now to Elijah. And you'll notice that the Lord knows exactly what Elijah needs in order to get the victory and to be brought to a new place. And the first thing that the angel of the Lord, the first thing that the Lord does is 
He allows Elijah plenty of time to rest. Verse 5, he lay and slept. And so the first thing that Elijah needed was rest. Warren Wearsby once said, you know, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just take a rest. And God knows that our minds and our bodies and our souls need rest. That's why he's given us a Sabbath. The word Sabbath just means rest. He's given us a day of rest because he knows our bodies and our minds and our souls need rest. And then there are times whenever we need more than just a weekly Sabbath. We need to come apart, as the Lord said to his disciples, into a desert place and rest a while, rest a little bit longer. And during those times, you need to rest upon the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And the first thing that Elijah needed was rest. Emotional rest, physical rest, and spiritual rest. And then, not only did he need rest, but he also needed the Lord to touch him afresh. As he lay and slept under a juniper tree, the angel of the Lord touched him. We always need the Lord to touch our lives. We always need the Lord to come and make his presence known to us. But if we're so busy in life like Martha, we often rob ourselves of those times that Mary enjoyed of knowing the touch of God in our lives. If you study the Word of God and study the lives of great men and women of God and read Christian biography, you'll discover that men and women of God always need a fresh touch of God in their lives. And maybe that's your greatest need this morning, just to have the touch of God in your life again, and a new touch, a fresh touch. And you'll notice as well in verse number 6 that the Lord fed him. He says in verse 5, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon and coals, a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. So he needed more rest. But between the times of rest, he, he needed to be fed physically. This isn't, we could look into this and spiritualize it all. But simply, Elijah needed physical rest and physical food. Because he had been busy in chapter 19, and there was a lot of stress and strain in chapter 19, and at the end of chapter 19, he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So he's physically exhausted. His body is tired, his muscles are tired, his joints are sore, his mind has been tried and tested, and he needs to sleep, and he needs to eat. And sometimes, friends, whenever we feel so desperately low, the best thing to do, take a good long rest, eat plenty of good nutritious food at the right time, in the right amounts, and realize that our bodies need rest and our bodies need fed. And so often, whenever you take time to rest and time to eat, you find yourself feeling better already. And so many of Elijah's problems were physical problems. He needed rest. He needed food. And he also needed the touch of God in his life. 
And then you go on a little bit further, and you'll notice not only where the Lord found him, isolation, what the Lord did for him, intervention, but notice what the Lord said, said to him, and that's an interview, verse number 9. He came thither to a cave, and lords there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? God fed him, and he went on the strength of that food for, for several days, and traveled into Horeb, the mountain of God, and lords there. And then the Lord comes, and the Lord interviews him, and asks him a question. And the question is simply, what doest thou here, Elijah? Now we could look at that in a geographical sense. And the Lord could be saying to Elijah, well, Elijah, how have you come so far from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai? And why are you in the wilderness? And why are you living and dwelling in this cave? But I think there's so much more to it than just a, a geographical question. I believe the Lord is really speaking into Elijah's heart. Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you allowing yourself to feel the way you're feeling, perhaps? You've got so bitter against God's people. You're, you're telling me that you're the only one that's left and the only one that's really doing a work for God. And, and you've been listening to, to Jezebel. You've been listening to the enemy. And you haven't been eating right. And you haven't been taking time to rest. And, and now you've got yourself into this situation where you feel that there's no purpose in life and your service for God has been barren and dry and in vain and you're beginning to point the finger at, at God's people like Martha did to Mary. And how did you get to this place? Why are, what are you doing here, Elijah? Maybe is that a question that God has for you today? What doest thou here? How have you allowed yourself to get so down, so discouraged, maybe better against other Christians, maybe not in the place where you once were, not in the place where you ought to be. And maybe if you think about it in a very practical way, maybe a, a relationship that you're in, or some habit that you've allowed to develop in your life, or some besetting sin that you've allowed to grip your soul, or something entirely legitimate, but you've allowed it to consume your life completely, and you're not the better for it, and you know in your heart that you're not the better for it. And maybe God's question is, well, why are you staying in that place? What doest thou here, Elijah? Notice Elijah's answer in verse number 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts and for the, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the swords, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the fact that Elijah says at the end of verse number 10, they seek my life to take it away, and he's run into the wilderness, is an indicator that he doesn't really want his life to end. But he's tired of the life that he's been living. And he can see the sin in the nation. And he can see the sin in the church of his day. 
And he's got himself painted into a corner that he's the only one that really is walking with God and everybody else has got it wrong. And see, whenever you get to a place in the Christian life where you think you're the only person that's right and everybody else is wrong and you're the only person that sees things as they really are, the reality is you're probably the one that's got the wrong perspective. Elijah had got a wrong perspective and it led to discouragement. Notice lastly the consequences of the Christophany. As in all of these times, whenever the Lord appeared to his Old Testament people, it marked a new beginning in an individual's life. Notice verses 11 through 13. There's a fresh revelation. The Lord said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And you'll know the story, some of you well. There's a strong wind, a, a hurricane. Then there's a great earthquake, and then there's a great fire. But it says the Lord was not in any of these things at all. And then a still, small voice. And I believe the hurricane and the earthquake and the fire, they in many respects typify Elijah's personality. He was a prophet of fire. He was a man that was very robust. He was a man who was very volatile against the enemies of Israel and even against Israel themselves for the sin that they found themselves in. And sometimes people can come in like, a, like an earthquake or like a hurricane and like a fire and they can be very, very volatile and very quick to point out the faults and the errors of others. But it says God was in the still small voice. Gentleness meekness and quietness and it was a fresh revelation still small voice and after all of the upheaval of Mount Carmel and now all of the upheaval of the hurricane the earthquake and the fire this stillness a still small voice and in order to hear that still small voice you have to make yourself small and humble yourself and you have to be still yourself. And then there's also a gentle rebuke. Verse 13. Again, the same question. What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah, you're not in the place where you should be. Feeling sorry for yourself and having this victim mentality all of the time and a critical spirit against others. Because Elijah, you do not see the whole picture. You only see a very small part of it. And Elijah, you're tired and you're weary and you need rest and you need a fresh revelation and you need this gentle rebuke. But there's also in verse 15 to 17 a notable requirement. He says to him, go and return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. Anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Anoint Elisha to be prophet in thy room. And he's showing to, to Elijah here that, Elijah, you are not indispensable. And you're not the only one. I have other people out there that can do my work for me. And you need to realize, Elijah, that the journey is too great for thee. And you're not called or even asked to do it on your own. There are others 
that can be anointed and used in the service of God. Elijah, spread the workload a little bit. Don't try to take on everything yourself. And then you'll notice as well in verse number 18, there's a needful rectification. I've let, left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Elijah had been boasting in verse 10 and verse number 14, I only, I've been very jealous. I've stood for the Lord. I have done this. And I am the only one that's left. And the Lord says, Elijah, I've got 7,000 in Israel. And they haven't bowed their knees to Baal. And they haven't kissed Baal. And Elijah, you have fallen into this trap of thinking you're the only one. And so often believers and churches and even denominations can fall into that same trap. The disciples did it. In Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse number 38. Do you remember the time they came to the Lord and said, Lord, we were out there and we saw a man casting out devils in your name, but he didn't follow us. So we forbade him. And the Lord says, you shouldn't have done that. He that is not against me is for me. And just because he doesn't follow your little group, he was still doing a work for the Lord. And sometimes can't we have the same mentality? Somebody out there doing a work for the Lord in the Lord's name, but they don't follow us and we try to call them out and say they've got it wrong. And the problem is we get so proud and so bitter and so entrenched and so discouraged and then so depressed and we just feel like Martha and we feel like Elijah. Friends, God has his people everywhere. If you were with us on Monday night, Mr. Adams came and spoke about the work of the revival movement and great works that God is doing in other parts of the world. And we only see a small fraction of it. But the psalmist David said, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of such as keep thy precepts. Where art thou, Elijah? Where are you today in your, your walk with God? Are you in a wilderness? Are you under a juniper tree? Are you hiding away in a cave? Have you got bitter and critical? Have you got discouraged? and depressed. might be some of those things. It might be all of those things to a greater or lesser degree. Take time to rest spiritually, physically, mentally. Take time to eat physically and spiritually as well. Feed upon God's Word. Take time to listen to God's still small voice and may God touch your life afresh and encourage you this morning. We trust that God will meet with us all.